This is Michael Wahid Hanna. Welcome to the TCF World Podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Khaled Gindi, a non-resident fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. Uh, and we're here to chat about his most recent book, Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians, From Balfour to Trump. Khaled, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You come to this book, um, and the, the theme that runs throughout uh, are these blind spots um, of U.S. policy with respect to the Palestinians. Your, your aim is to remedy this lacuna in the research, that looking just at the way the United States has um, approached um, Palestinians, uh, and you, you highlight two areas in which uh, you note this blind spot. First, the disproportionate uh, power discrepancy, um, Israeli power, um, and a blindness towards Palestinian politics. Um, so maybe just briefly lay out um, you know, what, what you mean by those blind spots uh, and, and kind of the main takeaways in, in terms of how that's manifested itself over the years. Right. Um, so the, the starting point really is that um, in any negotiation, diplomatic or otherwise, I think people generally understand that the success of the process depends as much on the conditions outside the negotiating room as whatever happens inside. And in the geopolitical context, power and uh, politics matters a great deal. The power disparity, as you mentioned, between Israelis and Palestinians is is one of the driving forces of the conflict. Um, and of course, we understand that both sides also have their own internal um, politics when you're negotiating with um, uh, with uh, whatever party um, you're not just negotiating with the folks sitting across the table you're negotiating with and they're also negotiating with their own political uh, opposition their public opinion um, uh, you know all of these factors are brought into the process on on some level and I think people generally understand that 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 internal politics, as well as the power dynamics serve as constraints on the parties. But when it comes to this particular uh, issue in, in terms of the American role, unlike the American role in other conflict settings like Northern Ireland or in the Balkans or, or even in the Middle East, say, between uh, Egypt and Israel, there's a real blindness when it comes to um, how Americans deal with, say, uh, Israeli power, um, it sort of gets filtered out. Um, and there's a tendency by American policymakers to treat the parties as though they were co-equal or, um, uh, or as though there were some parity between the two sides. Like, for example, uh, between Egypt and Israel, the two sovereign states, clearly there's a balance of power, there's a, there's a discrepancy. Um, but you're still, at the end of the day, dealing with two two sovereign states, each with their own set of kind of strategic interests and uh, appeal to the United States in, in that regard. When we're talking about Israelis and Palestinians, we're talking about an entirely different ballgame where one side is essentially dominating the other side, and that is, a, that is clearly relevant to the conflict, and it's therefore relevant to a solution to the conflict. At the same time, there's a tendency on the part of, of the U.S., to, you know, while there, there's an enormous amount of deference to Israeli internal politics um, and how that constrains Israeli leaders, for example, 
Um, many presidents have been hesitant to push the Israelis too hard on things like a settlement freeze, even though everyone agrees that a settlement freeze is important uh, to, to making the process uh, work. But successive U.S. administrations have been reluctant to push too hard um, for fear of uh, weakening the Israeli leader or uh, you know, playing into their opponent's hands and things like that. When it comes to the Palestinians, there's virtually no regard for even the fact that Palestinians have internal politics, that they also have an opposition uh, that Yasser Arafat or Mahmoud Abbas have political opponents who would like to replace them, who would like to undermine them. Um, there's certainly very little regard for the fact that Palestinians also have a historical narrative. They have their own uh, national symbols and, and sense of, uh, of who they are, and that's also acts as a, as a kind of constraint, or at least informs how Palestinians go about uh, pursuing uh, this process. And so there's really not much appreciation uh, for that. Uh, it, back in, in 2007, I was an advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team, and at that point, uh, President Mahmoud Abbas had been pushing the United States since he came to power two years earlier for uh, for restarting negotiations with the Israelis. Uh, there was very little interest uh, on the part of the Americans in doing that until this moment in late 2007 when President Bush called for this conference in Annapolis. Um, but it was a particularly odd moment, and for me it was kind of an aha moment it was just a few weeks after Hamas had violently taken control of the Gaza Strip, uh, and so now the Palestinian Authority was divided. Uh, and a year before that, Mahmoud Abbas and his Fatah party had just lost a major election uh, that had brought Hamas to power. And so it seemed like a very odd moment uh, to, to begin uh, a negotiating process in which the weaker side was also at its uh, at its weakest. Um, and so that's kind of where the, where the idea came from. What accounts for, um, for this blind spot? And I mean, I, you know, if we look at the United States, not a colonial power in a formal sense, uh, Woodrow Wilson, um, his approach to self-determination, uh, we look at the fairly robust and heated discussions around, uh, the mandate, uh, and recognition of Israel, um, it didn't have to go this way. And I should say, in the book, you go back and trace this as something you believe has been there uh, largely from the start, um, uh, from you know, going back to the Balfour Declaration. Um, you know, what accounts for that perspective really shaping and dominating the ways in which the United States has approached the conflict? Yeah, um, let me tackle that in a slightly uh, indirect way. Um, so what I wanted to do in this book is to, and why I look at this whole 100-year period, is because I had a sense that there was there were common threads that run through all of these periods. Um, whether we're talking to the PLO or not talking to the PLO, I wanted to identify what are those common threads. And the common threads from the American standpoint are there's always been a very influential Zionist lobby, um, which, of course, after 1948 is then a, a pro-Israel lobby. Certainly nothing like, you know, I'm not saying that the, 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 the Zionist lobby in the 1930s is anyway similar to 
um, you know, the, the current pro-Israel lobby in terms of its power and influence, but it was there. There was a, an influential Zionist lobby from the beginning. Another constant is that you have a very sympathetic Congress that is very receptive to hearing the message of this influential, and it's partly what makes it so influential, um, Zionist slash Israeli lobby. The third constant is uh, we have a, a divided or ambivalent executive. And so whether, and, and by that I mean there's a sort of conflict within any given administration between its official stance um, based in large part on the preferences of the State Department or uh, and or the intelligence community on the one hand, and uh, the uh, president and domestic political considerations on the other. And so those tend to pull in different directions. And so we, we end up with a policy where, for example, Wilson, as you mentioned, uh, was a, the United States was officially neutral with regard to the Belfort Declaration. This was a British issue. Um, uh, but at the same time, both the White House and the Congress made pretty clear uh, their support for the Zionist project. And so we have that that uh, ambivalence from the get-go. And that continues right up through, you know, we see it in Truman, who is, uh, Harry Truman is f uh, against partition because that's what the State Department prefers. Then he's for partition. Then after um, the war breaks out, after fighting breaks out in, in Palestine in late 1947, then he's against partition again. So we see this kind of flip-flopping, and, and you can see it right through American management of the peace process. We're for the roadmap. We wrote the roadmap uh, peace plan that was put together in 2003. We're the primary authors, uh, and yet it was immediately, almost immediately abandoned uh, once it was released in 2003. So we see the same pattern happening over and over where you've got this push and pull within the administration. And so the blind spot comes from the fact that the issue of Israel and Palestine has been uh, and uh, remains a, a very important domestic uh, political issue, at least as much uh, as, uh, as it is a foreign policy issue. And so the fact that American policymakers tend to see the issue through an Israeli lens kind of filters out certain elements, specifically um, Israeli power, and especially where Israeli power is harming um, peace prospects, uh, and of course, Palestinian politics, because um, if you're looking at things from an Israeli lens, then you don't, you know, you, Palestinian politics is one of the first thing, uh, first things that gets kind of filtered out. Where are American strategic interests in this calculation? Obviously, you mentioned the views of the State Department, the, the views of the intelligence community, and obviously there's been some discussion and divergence among organs of the state. Um, but you know, from my perspective, there are huge opportunity costs. Um, during the Cold War, it was part of a quite dangerous potential uh, uh, pathway to escalation, as happened in 1973. Um, why haven't those strategic interests um, taken more of a front and center role in the ways that the United States has thought about thought about this? I mean, granted, your thesis is that there is a blind spot. But yet there are some powerful, in my mind, countervailing forces um, that haven't, uh, haven't won the day in some ways. No, it's true. And I think uh, one of the takeaways 
uh, from from the book. Certainly, one of the uh, the conclusions that I drew is that whenever there is that tension between U.S. national interests or the perception thereof, on the one hand, and the demands of uh, of domestic politics, it's usually the latter that went out. It's a very subtle process. Um, and it's also, it's very subjective because policymakers, whether we're talking about presidents or secretaries of states or, or, or others, are not necessarily conscious of this blind spot or even the ambivalence. And so what happens is um, American interests are understood also through that same lens and they become reinterpreted. And so you get these moments where there's a kind of a conflation of how American policymakers perceive their interests and, uh, and the needs of domestic politics. What I mean by that is that there's a tendency to, when there's a discrepancy, either to kind of um, gloss over the gaps or just simply assume that they don't exist, to assume that our national interests are, in fact, to do what the Israeli leadership or what the pro-Israel lobby want us to do. If you assume that they're one and the same, then, uh, then you don't have that conflict, um, at least internally. You can rationalize it. And so because all of these issues are so subjective, it's very easy to conflate one with the other. Citizenship and its Discontents is a Century Foundation initiative that brings together dozens of researchers to explore identity, inclusion, and community in the contemporary Middle East. Our contributors conducted extensive fieldwork in the region and aimed to open a new line of discussion in the Middle East and among Western policymakers. To see our research and join the discussion, please visit the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and click on the Citizenship tab. You'll find our research reports, interviews, podcasts, videos, and more. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. Uh, I'm Michael <laughs> Wahid Hanna. Uh, I'm here with Khaled Gindi, and we're talking about his new book, uh, The Blind Spot. Khaled, you point out that the, the driving focus uh, for many years, once the peace process is underway, uh, uh, is the sense that that for Israel to take risks for peace, um, that the U.S. would have to consistently assure Israel on on the level of uh, political uh, and military security. Um, you point out that this seems uh, this is a sort of perfect illustration of your point in terms of the the dynamics of of uh, of power differences, uh, in that the reassurances are all going toward uh, the stronger party. Um, Maybe walk us through a little bit about the effects of that on, on terms of how uh, negotiations and, and attempts at negotiations have unfolded. Right. This is a this is a basic assumption that is uh, that has really guided Washington's approach to the peace process since the beginning of the Oslo process. Um, and you know, as you said, it's it's this idea that for Israel to feel comfortable enough to take risks for peace, that it will need to be reassured constantly, and and we hear this sometimes um, framed as you can't pressure Israel into making concessions; you have to hug Israel into making concessions, and that's a theory, and it's a theory that has been espoused by a number of American uh, peace envoys. 
um, uh, over the years, and they've all written about it. Uh, in, 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 in similar terms. But the reality has been very different. When Israel doesn't have pressure, it doesn't, I think part of the problem is that it assumes that Israel is going to pursue uh, the goal of peace for its own sake, for altruistic reasons, or for, you know, abstract notions of what is right and what is wrong, as opposed to what is its in, in its own interests. Um, and by interests, I mean also its domestic political interest. Every Israeli leader has an interest in being reelected and in staying in power. Um, and that's not necessarily the same thing as what is in Israel's national interest, uh, more kind of in, in strategic terms. So what ends up happening is that the United States ends up putting less pressure on the stronger party. And because also its perception of the conflict is 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 kind of filtered through this Israeli lens. It is much less inclined to consider Palestinian politics or political narratives or uh, anything uh, along those lines. And so the the second impulse that American policymakers have is we need to transform the Palestinians into a suitable peace partner, and that's the flip side of of how this blind spot get gets played out. On the one hand, you reassure the Israelis because they're your close ally, you have a special relationship, um, not even to mention the fact that there is this domestic political component that looms large over uh, over all of this. And the Palestinians who you don't have a bilateral relationship with, who have a history, uh, have, there's lots of baggage associated with terrorism uh, in the 70s and in, in, in the 80s, you're not especially sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians. Um, and if anything, you're, you're inclined to, to the belief that, well, peace will only come when we can transform the Palestinians uh, and their politics. And so we see this emphasis on Palestinian institution building, um, a lot of which is, I think, normal also because the, the peace process wasn't just the Oslo process, wasn't just a conflict resolution uh, process. It was also a state building process. Um, so it's not like Egypt and Israel where you're just trying to figure out where they have differences and you mediate between them. It is also building up uh, the Palestinians into a future state. And so the Palestinian Authority building the Palestinian governing and security institutions uh, with a very heavy emphasis on things like security. All of these things become part of the, uh, of the peace process. And so, you know, the two components seem logical in and of themselves. Yes, the Palestinians are a non-state actor and they, they, um, there's this baggage of, you know, political violence. Um, Israel is a, is a close ally. So you hug one and you put pressure on the other. Um, but what ends up happening is by putting pressure on uh, the weaker party, constant pressure, and no pressure on the stronger party, you end up kind of maintaining the status quo at a minimum, and very often, I think, exacerbating the conflict because it's that power disparity that kind of drives the conflict. Israel is it's not just a conflict, it's an occupation. The Israelis uh, uh, rule over millions of Palestinians, uh, and that is part of that's part of this uh, discussion. 
Um, so speaking of Oslo, um, you you have a quote in the book that talks about um, a kind of fundamental flaw as uh, recounted by one uh, observer uh, that the PLO was made the protector of Israel. Uh, while Israel was still in occupation of territory, the PLO was to, committed to liberate. You also point out that there were no implementation mechanisms, uh, no processes for accountability. Um, looking back in hindsight, was Oslo fundamentally flawed or was this a, a failure of diplomacy and political imagination? Or both? I think all of the above. Um, I, I think the Oslo process, in a way, institutionalized the, the power asymmetry between the two sides uh, from, from the very outset. And PLO weakness, the fact that the PLO had lost sources of uh, financial support from the Gulf after the 1991 uh, Gulf crisis, uh, the PLO was in uh, dire straits. And it was one of the things that pushed the PLO toward toward the Oslo process. Um, the, another thing was the, the Intifada, which had kind of shifted the center of gravity of Palestinian politics away from the PLO leadership in exile toward the occupied territories where the uprising was happening. Um, and, and so that power disparity and that relative weakness of the PLO leadership is kind of what started the, 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 the Oslo process, and it gets institutionalized. It gets institutionalized because of the heavy focus on um, things like security first. Security first is a major doctrine of the Oslo process. The theory of security first is that if the Palestinians can meet their security obligations and Israelis feel secure, they will be more forthcoming and you will see them able to make concessions like giving up more territory uh, to, the, to Palestinian control. Um, but the reality was, you know, security is a strategic uh, end for the Israelis. It's their ultimate goal. If they have recognition, which is what Oslo afforded them, they're recognized now by the PLO, and the Oslo process is giving them security, then that's pretty much their main interest. They have recognition that opens the door to uh, relations with uh, not just in the in the rest of the Arab world, but also internationally, um, to kind of normalization. Uh, and And if the PA is providing security on the ground for Israeli civilians, uh, then that's their second main interest. What incentive do they have to do the very difficult things like withdrawing from more territory, uh, dividing Jerusalem to allow for a Palestinian capital, allowing Palestinian sovereignty in areas that are considered part of the biblical homeland? So security first sounded very appealing, but the reality was that it kind of gave the Israelis its main uh, demands kind of up front, uh, which then relieved them of, of any incentive to do, you know, the really hard stuff down the road, as, as, as we've seen time and again. When you get to the Obama administration, um, I get the sense that uh, you think at, a, at an attitudinal level that they approached it at the start in a different way, um, but yet... Uh, they succumb to all of these traditional uh, blind spots. You do suggest at times that there are things that you think they could have done differently. 
Yeah, and I and I think that there are things that also the administration wanted to do differently, but were constrained for a number of reasons. Um, I think it's important to point out first, though, that the Obama administration uh, inherited a pretty lousy situation. Uh, it, they came to office. Obama came to office just a few days after a ceasefire uh, in Gaza um, uh, that had killed something like 1,400 Palestinians, massive damage to Palestinian infrastructure, tens of thousands of Palestinians internally displaced in the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian authorities still divided between uh, Hamas in in Gaza and uh, uh, the PA in the West Bank. Uh, The settlement enterprise had been hugely successful. Benjamin Netanyahu is now re-elected, comes back to power in uh, around the same time that Obama comes. And so there's all these challenges. And even though Obama identified this issue as a major priority and tried to tackle it and tried to do things differently, he was ultimately uh, constrained because he got pushback from the usual sources, um, Congress and the pro-Israel lobby. Um, So when he, for example, uh, decided to close some of the loopholes that other presidents had allowed on things like settlement construction, um, and and he came in and said, "Look, we're not going to allow for things like natural growth, and you know, carve out these exceptions to allow Israel to continue building settlements. Uh, we want a total freeze." But got immediate pushback, of course, from the Israelis and from Congress, and he immediately backed off. Uh, and so that was the first test, I think, that and and the kind of failure to recognize how damaging. Uh, the Gaza-West Bank split was to uh, to the process uh, and, and a failure to address that. I think maybe they did understand at an intellectual level that we certainly understood that settlements were bad, but they were constrained from doing too much, uh, uh, pushing too hard on that. But I think they also understood that the division was bad, um, but they weren't about to go to Congress and try to make the case for why uh, we should support Palestinian reconciliation. One, because Hamas and Fatah themselves weren't quite there yet until a few years later during the Arab Spring when we saw, you know, suddenly things like domestic legitimacy began to matter to leaders in the region. At the end of the day, um, they were just too constrained. And part of it was that American politics had shifted in the intervening years since Oslo. You know, we used to have at least uh, a fairly, you know, fairly strong consensus between the two parties on things like a two-state solution uh, on the Oslo process, the basic framework of of Oslo. By the time we get to the Obama administration, um, there's a real shift that has happened in the Republican Party, especially, uh, as Israeli politics shift more and more to the right, so has the Republican Party, um, uh, such that they're no longer even committed to a two-state solution. Um, so when Obama comes and, for example, says uh, any future resolution should be based on the 1967 borders with minor modifications, the standard formula that that um, previous presidents had uh, had adopted, he gets a very different response from Congress, who accuse him of throwing 
uh, Israel under the bus. Uh, and uh, even though it was essentially the same language that was used by the Bush administration. So that shift in American politics um, has become more and more constraining over time. So if Obama inherited a bad situation, um, the Trump administration has uh, made the situation that much worse. Um, These blind spots have only increased. There is probably no... uh, practicable way to achieve a two-state solution now, I don't think. You might disagree. A one-state solution is something that is, I think, um, doesn't have a clear political constituency yet among Palestinians, uh, doesn't have political leadership for that cause yet. Uh, That might shift. But also, it's a a kind of, in my estimation, I think a multi-generational struggle um, is that is that where we are, a kind of uh, struggle of attrition uh, in which Palestinians are going to be forced uh, to push for those kinds of rights of citizenship? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. That was a lot actually. of editorializing <laughs> on my part. but uh, No, but I actually <laughs> agree with your editorializing uh, almost uh, completely. Um, you know, the moment that we're in is sort of an odd moment, and it's it's a very unsatisfying kind of analysis, but... You know, I think you're right. We are we are at the end of the two-state solution era. I mean, certainly the Oslo process is dead. And for all intents and purposes, if you don't have a credible peace process, how do we even get to a two-state solution? Um, and I think underscoring that is that the political consensus, both in Israel and even in the United States, regarding a two-state solution has collapsed. So realities on the ground are working against two-state solution. The political constellation also is working against a two-state solution. The regional dynamics are working against it. And of course, uh, internal dynamics with the Palestinians are, you know, the fact that they're still weak and divided is also another factor that's working against that goal. And so if we're at the end of of the era of a two-state solution, I agree completely. We're also not at the beginning of of the one-state solution era because, as you said, there isn't a credible political actor that is kind of rallying under the banner of of a one-state solution. Even, you know, certainly Fatah and the PA leadership is still very much invested in in the 1967 UN Security Council Resolution 242, Land for Peace, all of the old terms of reference of the peace process, they are still committed to. And in a way, even Hamas, uh, which is the only other real meaningful political actor in Palestinian politics, um, has has also kind of come on board with the idea of two states on a de facto basis. They don't talk about 242 and they don't talk about recognition of Israel, but they do talk about a willingness to live, uh, to accept a Palestinian state in all of the, the lands occupied in 1967 with Jerusalem as its capital. So there's kind of this, the political consensus among Palestinians is still sort of intact, um, but they're the weakest party. And so they can't really bring this about. Um, but we don't see on the horizon a political party or movement um, that is rallying around uh, a one-state solution. We hear echoes of it in civil society and in different uh, places in the occupied territories and in the diaspora. But we're we're kind of in this nether world where a two-state solution isn't possible, but a one-state solution isn't possible either, and we're just sort of stuck until something 
dramatic changes like a new Palestinian leadership of some sort, um, some major you know, military development, something akin to the 1967 war, which, you know, shifted the dynamics uh, at, at that time. But short of that, I think we are kind of, you know, as you refer to it, this attrition, um, where we're neither here nor there. Well, on that very grim but I mean, entirely <laughs> predictable uh, note, it's not, uh, not going to have a happy ending. Um, Thanks for uh, joining us today, and um, good luck with your new book. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.